Can you dream of a world immune to cancer? Hello everyone, my name is Nick and I'm the host of the annual live stream for The Cure where content creators and podcasters from around the world join me to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute and Immunotherapy Research, which is training the body's immune system to fight against all forms of cancer. Over the past seven years, thanks to the power of indie podcasters and the indie podcasting community and listeners just like you listening to this right now, we have raised over $90,000. And as I record this now, the eighth annual live stream for The Cure is barreling down upon us really, really quickly in just about two weeks. So join us, please, from May 29th through June 1st for 48 hours of amazing content from people all over the world and help us fight for a world immune to cancer. And I'll return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Thank you so, so much. And together, we can make a difference. What I want from you is your voice. My voice? You've got it, sweet cakes. No more talking, singing, zip. But without my voice, how can I record a podcast? You'll have your looks, your pretty face, and don't underestimate the importance of body language. Hi everyone, I'm Em and welcome to Verbal Diorama episode 140, The Little Mermaid. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. And a huge welcome to the first episode celebrating the third birthday of Verbal Diorama. And whether you are a regular returning listener or a brand new listener to this podcast for The Little Mermaid, thank you so much for being here because this is, well... Kind of a momentous occasion. I never expected that this podcast would continue (laughs) as it has for three years. And so I'm incredibly grateful and incredibly honoured that you are here with me to talk about The Little Mermaid. This is all part of something that I'm calling Animation Season 2022. It is the third annual animation season that I've done. And it's always been one of my favourite things. And to be honest, this animation season so far, I've purposefully featured movies from certain studios that maybe you wouldn't automatically go to. And I always wanted to save Disney for the birthday episodes. Uh, I did something similar last year as well, where I looked at the gold, silver and bronze ages of Disney. And I grew up watching Disney movies. I grew up watching all sorts of Disney movies, but the Renaissance Disney movies were the main movies that I grew up watching. And I've always had a very special place in my heart for the Disney Renaissance, but especially the movies that I'm going to be covering. Now, I have actually already covered Aladdin on this podcast. It was a long, long time ago. It was one of the very first episodes that I did, actually. And it wasn't really what I would consider a proper episode of this podcast, because it was when the live action version of Aladdin came out. And I wanted to do a sort of double episode way back when in 2019. 
when I wasn't really 100% certain of the format of this podcast and I wanted to try different things. And I've basically decided that I don't want to do episodes like comparison episodes like that anymore. Is there a possibility that I will go back to the animated Aladdin? There is every possibility that I will go back to the animated Aladdin because I adore that movie. It genuinely is one of my favourite Disney movies ever. But I've always had a very special place in my heart for The Little Mermaid because this was another one of those movies that we had at home, that I watched repeatedly, that I recorded the soundtrack on a cassette tape, as you did. I also did it for The Lion King as well. And so covering these Disney Renaissance movies just seemed like the absolute pinnacle of celebrating the third birthday of this podcast. But before I do, I just wanted to say a huge thank you to everyone who's listened to any episode of this podcast, actually. Any of the previous animation season episodes that I've done, the most recent ones were Anastasia and Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. And as I said, throughout all of animation season, I've promised the big guns. And so now, hopefully, you think I'm delivering the big guns. I'm doing a three-part Disney Renaissance special. And as I said, I'm not going to be doing Aladdin, but I am going to be doing Beauty and the Beast and The Lion King. But we're going to start with the eighth movie for this animation season, a movie that literally saved Walt Disney Animation, as well as paving the way for it to become the huge corporate behemoth that it is today. And if we're going to start Renaissance Disney, we need to start with the movie that started Renaissance Disney. Here's the trailer for The Little Mermaid. This I haven't seen in years. This is wonderful. The child is in love with a prince. Have you lost your senses completely? He's a human. You're a mermaid. Teenagers, you give them an inch, they swim all over you. The time has come to return. Under the sea. Under the sea. Walt Disney Pictures invites you back to the spectacular world of the Little Mermaid. Look at you. There's something different. She's got legs, you idiot. Relive the timeless classic with Flounder, Sebastian, King Triton, Ursula the Sea Witch, Prince Eric, and of course, Ariel. Oh my gosh. Sing with me now. Coming only to theaters this holiday season. Rebellious 16-year-old mermaid Ariel is fascinated with life on land. On one of her visits to the surface, which are forbidden by her controlling father, King Triton, she falls for a human prince. Determined to be with her new love, Ariel makes a dangerous deal with the sea witch Ursula to become human for three days, but she must give up her beautiful voice. Things are going swimmingly with Prince Eric, 
despite the lack of voice, until Ursula decides to take matters into her own hands and puts a spell on the prince. Let's go through the voice cast of this movie. We have Jodie Benson as Ariel. She also plays Vanessa as well. Christopher Daniel Barnes as Prince Eric. Pat Carroll as Ursula. Kenneth Mars as King Troyton. Samuel E. Wright as Sebastian. Jason Marin as Flounder. Buddy Hackett as Scuttle. And René Aubergenois as Chef Louis. The Little Mermaid was written and directed by John Musker and Ron Clements and based on The Little Mermaid by Hans Christian Andersen. And I always like to travel back in time to where our stories begin on this podcast, and this is no exception. So let's go back to 1837 and the publication of Hans Christian Andersen's The Little Mermaid. And like all good fairy tales, the origins of this story aren't as Disney-fied as they would come to be. The bare bones of the story is a similar one to the one we know. A young mermaid falls in love with a handsome prince who is shipwrecked. She rescues him, falls in love and makes a deal with the sea witch to become human, whereby she has to make him fall in love with her so they can live happily ever after. He becomes betrothed to another woman and the mermaid is heartbroken. I mean, you know it. But let's talk about the differences between what we know and the original slightly more violent and dark tale. The original Little Mermaid is 15 and merfolk live for centuries under the sea but have no afterlife and cannot go to heaven. She's the youngest of several sisters who tell her tales at the surface. When she's finally allowed to go to the surface, she rescues a prince and finds that she's fallen in love with him. But she can't stay on dry land, and so she leaves him at the foot of a temple and goes. He never sees his rescuer. Melancholy, the mermaid, speaks to her grandmother, who tells her that humans and merfolk can never be together, and neither do humans live forever. But they do have eternal souls and can live on in heaven, whereas mermaids will turn to sea foam and will cease to exist. Longing for the prince's love and an eternal soul, the mermaid makes a deal with a sea witch, who can give her legs, but with some conditions. Firstly, the sea witch wants her voice, which she gets not with a magic spell, but by cutting out the mermaid's tongue. The sea witch grants her the magic potion, but tells the mermaid that taking it will cause considerable agony, every step on her new human legs will feel like she's walking on knives, and that if the prince marries someone else, the mermaid will die the following dawn. The mermaid becomes human, finds the prince, and he's charmed by her, and she becomes his favourite companion. Despite the pain of every step, the mermaid dances for him. This partnership continues until the prince announces he is betrothed to a princess from a neighbouring kingdom, who was studying at the temple where he was found, believing her to be his rescuer. The mermaid mourns, but on the prince's wedding night, her sisters appear with an enchanted knife which they received from the sea witch in exchange for their long hair. If the mermaid can kill the prince with this knife by stabbing him in the heart and letting his blood drip onto her legs, she can become a mermaid again. The mermaid, though, cannot bring herself to kill the man she loves, and instead of doing so, she throws the knife away, jumps from the ship and dissolves into sea foam. But, because of her selfless act of love and her drive for an immortal soul, she doesn't die. Instead, she becomes a benevolent earthbound spirit, one of the daughters of the air, and after 300 years of good deeds, she will finally be able to ascend to heaven. And that is the story of The Little Mermaid. Slightly different to the story that we know, but actually kind of not that different. This was part of a series of fairy tales told for children published in Copenhagen in 1837. It was originally entitled Daughters of the Air. It's theorised that The Little Mermaid was written by Anderson as a love letter to Edvard Collin upon hearing of Collin's engagement to a young woman, 
which is interpreted as Anderson having romantic feelings towards Colin, but, like the mermaid in the tale, is unable to speak them out loud. And Hans Christian Andersen had a real affection for the mermaid of his tale, writing to fellow author B.S. Ingerman in 1837 that he preferred her over Thumbelina, another of his fairy tale creations. He felt that he suffered with her, and her determination to win her prince attracted another man to her story, and that man was the one and only Walt Disney. Walt Disney started developing The Little Mermaid for a series of featurettes in the 1930s, and Kay Nielsen would develop the project originally, making a lot of the changes that Musker and Clements themselves would make in 1989. But Disney shelved it in favour of The Ugly Duckling. It would be this idea that the Disney studio would revisit just under 20 years after Walt Disney's death in the early 1980s. And really, his death had left the company bereft in more ways than one. Under the new management of Don Tatum, Card Walker and Walt's son-in-law Ron Miller, the company struggled under the weights of its expectations. Up-and-coming animators who were brought in to refresh the staff, who were by then all experienced animators coming up to retirement, aka the Nine Old Men, these new faces like Don Bluth would become disillusioned with working at Disney and leave. This is something that I've talked about a lot on other episodes that focus on Don Bluth. Disney as a company had much preferred its live action output with the likes of Mary Poppins, Bedknobs and Broomsticks, seen as the easier way to make money. There was also the theme parks and the merchandise making the company money with relative ease, but Walt Disney's Epcot Center in Florida was hemorrhaging money. The Rescuers had been a success in 1977, and that movie was meant to signal a new age for Disney animation. But the production of The Fox and the Hound was tempestuous, to say the least, as the nine old men and the new up-and-coming animators clashed over how The Fox and the Hound should play out leading to animation staff resigning, such as aforementioned Don Bluth, who took several animators with him as well, leading to delays of over six months on The Fox and the Hound. Roy E. Disney, Walt's nephew, disagreed with the direction the company was going in and resigned as an executive in 1977, but kept a seat on the board of directors. His resignation letter would say, the creative atmosphere for which the company has so long been famous and on which it prides itself has in my opinion, become stagnant. In 1984, a hostile takeover by shareholder Saul Steinberg meant that Disney bought him out of the company and Roy E. Disney, who had resigned during the takeover attempt, returned to the company as vice chairman. He brought in Michael Eisner from Paramount Pictures to become CEO, Frank Wells of Warner Brothers as president, and Jeffrey Katzenberg, also of Paramount, as studio chairman. Peter Schneider was also hired as president of Disney's feature animation department. It's worth noting that Eisner had no experience with animation and no personal connection to Disney whatsoever. He hadn't even been to a theme park or seen a movie, but he was confident that he could cut costs and yield profit by focusing on live action movies and TV shows. Then came The Black Cauldron, which definitely deserves an episode all to itself. So possibly next animation season, that will happen. But that movie was so dark and terrifying that newly appointed studio chairman Jeffrey Katzenberg ordered certain scenes to be removed. And when he was told that animated movies can't be edited, took the film into an edit bay and started editing it himself. While Michael Eisner stopped this process, Katzenberg still insisted it couldn't go out as it was, and that movie was delayed for another six plus months to be reworked. The Black Cauldron ended up losing money, being beaten at the box office by the Care Bears movie. Disney 
then decided to focus on its live action output. Live action was quicker, cheaper, and more or less guaranteed an audience. To accommodate the shift to live action focused filmmaking and to give the animation department notice on its profitability, the department, which was already suffering from low morale, was moved out of the main Disney lot in Burbank to Flower Street, Glendale, two miles away in an industrial park, in various warehouses, hangars, and trailers. Animation was, to all intents and purposes, demoted within Disney. Disney founded a television animation division, the animation division that gave us things like DuckTales, and Roy E. Disney convinced that animation was the past, present, and future of Disney, persuaded Michael Eisner to let him return to the company and supervise the now despondent animation department. One of the changes Michael Eisner made to Disney was the introduction of The Gong Show, something I mentioned back in my episode on Treasure Planet all the way back in episode 36. Anyone could pitch Michael Eisner their idea, and it was either considered or gonged. And to be gonged meant that it was out. Ron Clements had been keen on the idea of an animated adaptation of The Little Mermaid since working with John Musker on The Great Mouse Detective. He wrote a treatment and pitched it at The Gong Show in 1985, where it was gonged. Mostly because Disney already had a movie about a mermaid that had come out the previous year. It was a live-action movie and it was called Splash. And they felt that The Little Mermaid was too similar to Splash. The next day, however, Jeffrey Katzenberg greenlit the film along with the adaptation of Oliver Twist, Oliver and Company, which I loved as a kid, by the way, but I've not seen it in a long time, so that's definitely one that I need to revisit. They decided to do Oliver and Company first, alongside Who Framed Roger Rabbit, one of my favourite movies of all time. That's episode four of this podcast, and I love that movie so much. Katzenberg also hired lyricist Howard Ashman on the recommendation of David Geffen, who had produced Little Shop of Horrors. Another episode on that one, that's number 45. With Ashman came Alan Menken. It seems somewhat exaggerated to place the sole responsibility of the creation of Disney's renaissance on one person. After all, there is an old saying, it takes a village to raise a child. And obviously the child in this case is the Little Mermaid. But while the Little Mermaid is the coming together of an incredible team of very talented people, including Jeffrey Katzenberg, despite the fact that he almost railroaded the movie altogether, and I am going to come to that, as well as directors Ron Clements and John Musker, who together have created some of the best movies of the entire Disney catalogue. The rise of the Disney Renaissance would not be what it was without Howard Ashman. He brought the Broadway musical into Disney, brought the humour and satire from Little Shop of Horrors, and transformed a depressing fairy tale into a Broadway spectacle by making the music a focal point for character development and plot progression. He was the man who gave Ariel her voice, who made Sebastian, or rather Horatio Thelonius Ignatius Crustaceous Sebastian, to give him his full name, Jamaican instead of English, so they could lean into calypso and reggae for the music. The next episode on Beauty and the Beast, I'm going to talk more about Howard Ashman. But he really was pivotal to the success of this movie. And really, if anyone changed modern animation, anyone in the whole world, it was Howard Ashman. He never lived to see what these movies would become. Ashman worked closely with the cast on their musical numbers. He would perform them first for them. His ad-libs for Ursula would be used by Pat Carroll in the movie. When she said to him she'd stolen them from him, he said he wanted her to steal them from him. Lines like pathetic and body language, ha, and in it. All that came from Ashman's performance of Poor Unfortunate Souls. Jodie Benson heard of the audition for The Little Mermaid through Howard Ashman as they'd worked together on Smile until it closed early on Broadway. 
She heard Ashman's demo of Part of Your World, recorded it for Disney executives, and she got the part of Ariel based on that. She still continues to play Ariel as well, most recently in The Little Mermaid Live and in 2018's Ralph Breaks the Internet. Christopher Daniel Barnes, who you may know from the Brady Bunch movie, he was only 16 when he won the role of Prince Eric. And Emmy and Grammy winner and Tony nominee Pat Carroll won the part of Ursula after Elaine Stritch had created differences with Howard Ashman. Carroll considers Ursula her favourite role throughout her entire career. And this is a career that's long and varied. Includes The Danny Thomas Show, Laverne and Shirley and ER. The part of Ursula was actually written with B. Arthur in mind. And the design of the character was based on a mythological creature called a Cecilia or octopus person and famously was based on drag performer Divine, who also unfortunately died before the movie's release. And like most Disney villains, is queer-coded. But that's not particularly surprising when you realise that Howard Ashman himself was a gay man living in the US in the 1980s, during the AIDS epidemic. And so it's not rocket science to suggest that the message of The Little Mermaid isn't just princess falls in love with prince and lives happily ever after, or at least it is to children, but really... It's a story about identity, about feeling unhappy with the life you have, the expectations of your family and social circle, feeling like you don't belong. Even our human artefacts are literally closeted, hidden behind a stone door. Ursula might beguile Ariel into a contract, but she also empowers Ariel to fight for the life she wants. And I think it's pretty certain to say that had Howard Ashman not been a producer, as well as the lyricist, then The Little Mermaid may have been devoid of this particular subtext. When it came to animating The Little Mermaid, the lead character of Ariel was supervised by Glenn Keane, now a Disney Hall of Fame inductee, who despite having no experience animating young women, he mostly animated villains, to be honest, knew he had to be her animator when he heard Jodie Benson singing Part of Your World. Originally, he had been slated to work on Ursula. Special attention to detail was given to Ariel, who was originally blonde in concept art, to distinguish her from Daryl Hannah's character Madison on Splash, she was made a redhead to contrast to her green tail, and this made her the first red-headed Disney princess. Alyssa Milano was reportedly the inspiration for her body type, and her hair underwater was based on astronaut Sally Ride, as well as animators taking guidance from a live-action actor, in this case, Sherilyn Stoner, who immersed herself underwater. And this is harking back to the ways of Golden Age Disney when animators rotoscoped live-action footage. Little Mermaid has the most special effects in any Disney animated movie since Fantasia and it's estimated that one million bubbles were hand-drawn. Most of this work was subcontracted out to a Chinese animation studio called Pacific Rim. The Little Mermaid was also the final Disney animated movie to use traditional hand-painted cell animation, a new process for digital colouring called CAPS, Computer Animation Production System, was trialled on certain scenes in The Little Mermaid including Eric and Ariel's wedding ship sailing away under a rainbow. Additionally, some items were computer-generated 3D wireframe models, which were plotted to cells and painted traditionally, such as the shipwrecks and Prince Eric's carriage. This makes The Little Mermaid the last Disney movie to use xerography. The first was 101 Dalmatians, but this had been tested in Sleeping Beauty, which coincidentally at this time was Disney's last animated fairy tale, and it had been released 30 years prior to The Little Mermaid. And for an old-fashioned fairy tale, The Little Mermaid sure did have an incredible amount of clout with the studio that at first wasn't even sure it'd be a success. This was despite Disney giving it a large budget. The Little Mermaid used low-key lighting effects to show the sun streaming through the water, especially seen in Ariel's Grotto. 
This was pretty revolutionary for Disney at the time, as although they'd animated water in the past, most famously in Pinocchio and Fantasia, creating an entire underwater community, with every single fish costing money and time to animate, lighting is also used to great effect to signal danger, such as with the shark in the sunken ship, and also with Ursula herself, showing how she lives in the deepest, darkest part of the ocean. And 30 plus years later, as of recording, this episode is being recorded in 2022. The Little Mermaid was released in 1989, so 33 years later. The Little Mermaid has not just aged gracefully, it's hardly aged at all. Speaking of hardly ageing, let's move on to my favourite part of this podcast, the obligatory Keanu reference, which is where I try and link the movie that I'm featuring with Keanu Reeves. And just like Prince Eric, Keanu has dark hair. In fact, I think he'd be a dead ringer for Eric, apart from the fact they have different colour eyes. Obviously, there's a different face shape and stuff like that. But if they'd made a live action Little Mermaid in the 90s, how perfect would Keanu have been? In fact, he'd be perfect now because, as I said, he doesn't age. And yes, the obligatory Keanu references are going to be very tedious for these episodes because it's really hard to link Keanu to Renaissance Disney. I have already talked about Howard Ashman, but we can't forget Alan Menken, who wrote the score and collaborated with Ashman on the songs. This is where the story gets quite juicy, though, because at a preview screening of the movie with local school children involved, they reportedly started getting fidgety during Part of Your World. Jeffrey Katzenberg immediately wanted to take the song out. This was protested by Musker, Clements, Menken and Ashman. Katzenberg was insistent, though. It was Glenn Keane who reportedly persuaded Katzenberg who was known for his bullish attitude, and this is something that I've spoken about several times on this podcast in other episodes, episodes on Shrek and Chicken Run, about Jeffrey Katzenberg and his insistence on the way he likes to do things. Glenn Keane persuaded Jeffrey Katzenberg to relent and to keep the song in, mostly because he had spent so much time animating the Part of Your World sequence. And let's be honest, it's one of the most beautiful sequences in the whole movie. Bear in mind as well that this particular screening it hadn't been colourised. It was a very early screening of the movie. So school children, it's kind of understandable. They might get a bit distracted. At a new screening, which was more advanced in its production and had been colourised, the audience loved the song and the musical number was kept in. And since then, Jeffrey Katzenberg has rescinded his opinion and realises that everyone else was in the right and that he was wrong and that he's glad that they fought to keep part of your world in the movie. As of February 2007, the soundtrack album for The Little Mermaid is certified six times platinum by the RIAA. This was a feat unheard of at the time of the movie's release for an animated film. It also won a Grammy Award for Best Recording for Children and Best Song Written Specifically for a Motion Picture or Television for Under the Sea. So this soundtrack is Grammy Award winning. There's not many animated movies out there that have a double Grammy Award winning soundtrack. The Little Mermaid was released on the 17th of November 1989 in a busy week for cinema releases with Harlem Nights, Back to the Future Part 2, Steel Magnolias and, interestingly, All Dogs Go to Heaven released in the same week. The Little Mermaid had to make do with fifth place in its first week, but it at least charted higher than All Dogs Go to Heaven which had been made by rival animation studio Sullivan Bluth, led by ex-Disney animator Don Bluth. The Little Mermaid would climb up to third in its second week and be up 14% in its takings, 
By its fifth week, it would be in 250 more cinemas in the US and up 26% in its box office haul. Its sixth week, it went up 116%. There seemed no stopping this particular mermaid, and it would continue to do well over the Christmas period. Not bad for a movie, Jeffrey Katzenberg originally said would not be as popular as Oliver and Company because it was a, in inverted commas, girls' film. Financially, it would earn $84.4 million in the US. That's 64% more than Oliver and Company. It would also be re-released the same day as Anastasia on the 14th of November 1997. I mentioned that in my recent episode on Anastasia. Outside the US, it made $123 million, making a total gross of $235 million on a reported $40 million budget. The Little Mermaid would also change the way Disney released on home video. Usually, these home releases were years after a cinematic release, but The Little Mermaid had a release on VHS, Laserdisc, Betamax and Video 8 six months after the theatrical release. This, along with merchandise in Disney stores, garnered a profit of $1 billion. It would be released on DVD in 1999 and Blu-ray in 2013. And let's be honest, there's been multiple re-releases of the DVD and the Blu-ray ever since those dates. And it still continues to sell well. And not only was The Little Mermaid a financial success, it was also a critical success, with critics literally lauding the new era of Disney animation. The Little Mermaid was also the first Disney animation since The Rescuers in 1977 to receive Oscar nominations, which it won for Best Original Score and Best Original Song for Under the Sea. Kiss the Girl had also been nominated for Best Original Song. It also received four Golden Globe nominations and won Best Original Score and Best Original Song for Under the Sea. Howard Ashman would be there to see The Little Mermaid win its Oscars. It was after that that he told Alan Menken that he was HIV positive. And as I said, I'm going to be speaking more about Howard Ashman in the next episode on Beauty and the Beast. A director video sequel, The Little Mermaid 2 Return to the Sea, was released in 2000. And no, it's definitely not as good. A prequel, The Little Mermaid Ariel's Beginning, was released in 2008. I have not seen that. There's also been several TV projects. There's been an animated TV series. There's been some Sebastian shorts, as well as Ariel's cameo in Ralph Breaks the Internet. There were live presentations at the Hollywood Bowl in 2016 and 2019. Also in 2019, The Little Mermaid Live, starring Moana's Orly Cravalho as Ariel and Queen Latifah as Ursula, aired on ABC. And also, also in 2019, because obviously this was the 30th anniversary of the movie, so there was a lot going on for it. Halle Bailey was cast as Ariel for a live action adaptation of the story. Also starring Melissa McCarthy, Javier Bardem, David Diggs and Jonah Howard King. It's due for release on the 26th of May 2023. And honestly, I have reasonably low expectations for the live action version. Just because none of the Disney live-action movies, except Pete's Dragon and The Jungle Book, have actually impressed me. I thought they've been fine. I thought Beauty and the Beast was fine. I thought Aladdin was fine. I never finished the so-called live-action Lion King. I just couldn't finish it, <laughs> which sounds really bad. I'll probably talk about that more in the Lion King episode. But I will give the live-action Little Mermaid a shot. I think Halle Bailey is going to be great because she's an actress and she can sing. And let's be honest, we just need an actress who can sing because it's really important that Ariel has a beautiful voice and Halle Bailey does have a particularly beautiful voice. So I will definitely give the live action movie a shot, but 
Let's see. Let's see if it can impress. It's hard to actually put into words how special this movie is. This was the game changer. It didn't just change Disney, it changed the animation industry. Animation could be high-end, it could be Broadway, it could be profitable and be a story that you could revisit multiple times. While the movies that would come next in the Renaissance overshadow it somewhat, due to the fact that Disney was on a roll, as Ursula might say, you can't deny what a 16-year-old mermaid did for Disney. We wouldn't have Beauty and the Beast or Aladdin or The Lion King, but we also wouldn't have Tangled or Frozen or Moana or any other movie that follows this template. It's a well-worn template, but it's well-worn for good reason. While with modern feminist ideals, you could look at Ariel and scoff at her rebelliousness in that she literally just wants to be with a guy she just met and that she fell in love with after literally just seeing him for five seconds, at least she had dreams of living above the water first. She doesn't defy her father for any important reason, just because teenagers defy their parents for all sorts of reasons. Heaven knows I did. Ariel was the first modern princess, an evolution from Snow White, Cinderella and Aurora before her. Conversations around consent and the Me Too movement have changed how we feel about how our female characters are depicted on screen, but there's a strong connection between the tenacity and motivation and strength and stubbornness of Ariel through to Elsa, Moana, Rapunzel and, most recently, Raya. This was the little movie that could, and it did. This was the movie that changed the world. It stands head and shoulders above Disney's output in the early 80s and most of its output post-Renaissance too. And the next episode, I'm going to move on to the movie that followed The Little Mermaid, that took what The Little Mermaid did, and it got nominated for one of the highest honours in Hollywood, previously unheard of for an animated movie, a Best Picture Academy Award. And that movie is, of course, Beauty and the Beast. Thank you for listening. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on The Little Mermaid. Thank you so much for being part of this journey with me. Thank you for sharing this podcast, for telling your friends, for retweeting and liking posts, for leaving a rating or review. All of those things have made such a difference to this podcast. It's made such a difference to me over the last three years to have that support. As always, a huge thank you to the patrons of this podcast for showing their support, but also for showing their support financially, because this podcast could not have evolved and it could not have grown without those wonderful people. And so... With thanks out of the way, I'm not going to do the normal post-episode blurb of do this and do that and please do this and please do that because, you know what, this is a huge thank you episode to everyone who's ever really supported me. And so, really, all I have to say is, and finally. Sacre bleu, what is this? How on earth could I miss such a sweet little succulent crab? Quel dommage, what a loss! Here we go in the sauce! Now some flour, I think just the dab! <laughs> now I'll stuff you with bread! It don't hurt! Cause you're dead! Then you're certainly lucky you are! <laughs> Cause it's gonna be a hot in magic silver pot to the poisson! Au revoir! Bye!